2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
3: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Sarah Clegg to tell us all about her fascinating book titled Women's Lore, published by Apollo in 2023. This is a really interesting book that examines 4,000 years of history of a particular kind of monster. We might know it today as mermaids, um, but ancient times would have thought more of sirens, serpents, succubi. There's all sorts of names running around here. Um, And fascinatingly, I learnt from this book all of these different kinds of stories have a lot of links to each other. Um, And there's a lot we can learn about how different societies over place and time think about women, how women think about things like pregnancy and motherhood through examining these stories of monsters. So Sarah, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast to tell us all about it. Thank you for having me. Before we dive into all the myths and legends and what they tell us, would you mind introducing yourself a bit and explaining why you decided to write this book?
1: Certainly. So way, way back when I was doing my BA and for my BA thesis, I wrote about the demoness Lamashtu, this ancient Mesopotamian monster of childbirth and infant death. And I fell in love with her. She is absolutely fascinating and we will get into her later. Um, But on top of how cool she is, I was obsessed with the fact that you could trace her through history, that she has this 4,000 year long life and that she's attached to sort of Lilith, the first wife of Adam and mermaids and a whole load of monsters in between that I'd never even heard of. I just, I was head over heels. And in my academic career, I stayed in ancient Mesopotamian history, but didn't stay with Lamashtu. But the whole time I was researching this on the side as a passion project, Um, I think it was about 10 years, um, and it came together and became a book. Passion projects tend to make great books,
3: and this is definitely no exception. So obviously, we have to start with Lamashtu, right? So who is is she? Where and when does she come from and why is that significant? Start with that and then we'll get into the kind of
1: tracing her through history. Sure. So Lamashtu is one of the most formidable demons in ancient Mesopotamia. She has talons instead of feet. She has claws instead of fingers. She has a lion's head or a donkey's head. Um, Sorry, a lion's head or a dog's head sorry, and a donkey's tongue. She holds snakes and she's serpentine when she moves. Um, By the end, she has wings. And what she does is she murders infants. Um, She causes problems with pregnancies um, and she kills pregnant women. Um, And that is sort of her area of expertise. Um, um, Prior to modern medicine, women, uh, prior to modern medicine, childbirth and early infancy are periods of extreme danger. We know that sort of 8% of women are dying in childbirth, and that's not even counting the number of women who are left with um, life-changing injuries from it or have a traumatic experience during it. Um, And we also know that only 33% of children, roughly, are surviving until they're 10 years old. So this is a really incredibly fraught time. And prior to modern medicine, there's not much that you can do. There's not much control you have over the situation. It will go how it goes. Um, And what you see with Lamashtu is that she is this horrible, formidable, terrifying demon, but she gives women in these horrible, terrifying situations a measure of control because you might not be able to you know, actually change the course of the pregnancy or actually help your child who's sick in a way that you don't understand. But you can at least clutch onto an amulet with Lamashtu on it. You can recite a spell or an incantation. You can put stones that will drive her off around your child's neck. You can feel like you have some control over the situation, like you're able to do something about it. Um, And she is incredibly important because of that. Um, Yeah. So given that we know
3: these really horrific facts about uh, mortality, especially for mothers and children... Why do you think she turns up when and where she does? Oh, I
1: mean, well, that's that's an interesting question and not overly one that we can answer. So she turns up in sort of uh, end of the uh, sorry second millennium BC. So about two thousand BC on is when we have texts and amulets against her. And that kind of sounds like the beginning of everything, but actually in ancient Mesopotamia everyone's been writing and living in cities and whatnot for hundreds of years. Um, So does she just appear at that stage? Does she just appear in writings at that stage? You know, is she being passed down in oral traditions and that's when they decide to start writing her down? I mean, maybe there's also an immigrant group called the Amorites who are assimilating into mesopotamia during this time so maybe they're bringing lamash with them maybe she is a, an amorite demoness rather than a mesopotamian one um lots and lots of possibilities and very very difficult to pin down an exact reason because there's mm. just no evidence for it but whatever happens from the second millennium bc on People are writing about her, people are making incantations about her, people are making amulets against her in very large quantities. She's turning up everywhere. Whatever, however she comes, everyone's very glad she everyone's very glad she's there and they seize onto her. Um yeah. And and don't let her go, right? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. She, she lost mean- for ages. Yeah, I mean, the whole point of this book is that she lasts for 4,000 years. She slips into different societies, she slips into different cultures, and she stays in Mesopotamia. And she changes and, you know, she shifts about, but fundamentally she keeps those same attributes. And they're sort of still turning up in the modern period. You can find people making incantations against uh, creatures derived from her in sort of the 1980s, AD um yeah people do not want to let her go
3: Hmm. so we're now going to try and do some of that tracing through history though I will warn listeners the book has way more detail than we're going to be able to get into and I cannot recommend the detail enough honestly even just the footnotes are hilarious so take this as a highlights tour and then go read the book but if we're going to do that highlights tour um and we're thinking about some of these sort of I guess, is the Lamia or the Lamia stories, are those a version of Lamashtu? Is that a descendant of Lamashtu? Kind of what's the relationship? Well, first, I suppose, what are the Lamia stories? And then kind of how does that relate
1: to the demoness you've
3: described already?
1: Sure. So actually, I would say Lamia is the ancient Greek and Roman version of Lamashtu, Um She is a monstrous woman who will eat your children, who attacks women in childbirth, just as Lamashtu did. Uh, She's also very, very connected to serpents in exactly the same way that Lamashtu is as well. Um, She has all of these attributes that are very Lamashtu-like, and obviously the names are extremely similar too. Lamia has some sort of backstory to her as well in a way Lamashtu doesn't. Lamashtu is just there well, a horrifying force who was maybe the daughter of a goddess, of a god, and cast out of heaven because she wanted to eat children. But it's vague. Lamia, on the other hand, has this very concrete backstory where she is originally a queen of Libya. Uh, Zeus decides to rape her, um, and Hera gets jealous and um, drives Lamia mad so that Lamia eats her own children. And when Lamia realizes what she's done, she turns absolutely monstrous and she is fueled by this anger and jealousy that other women have what she lost, um, that other women have children and she wants to take them away and devour them like she did her own. That's pretty
3: intense um, yes. and definitely shows a continuity from Lamashtu.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Um, so, but then, oh, sorry. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, then you've got this flip side of Lamia in that, hmm, hang on. Tell us about the flip side. So Lamia, Lamashtu, very, very late on, combines with a monster called Lelitu in Mesopotamia. Lelitu is the ghost of a woman who died before she could have sex. And she seeks out mortal men to have her way with them. Um, and she is responsible for wet dreams. And quite late on in Lamashtu's history, these two she starts to blend together with Lilitu. Um, the wings that Lamashtu ends up with were likely brought to her by Lilitu. Um, and Lelitu obviously has this sexy side. And Lamia does as well. Now, whether or not It's because the Greeks are looking at a version of Lamashti which has this Lilitu side incorporated into it. Whether or not they've added sexiness all on their own is unclear. But Lamia is extremely sexually charged, as well as being this child killer. Um, There's a very famous legend about her where she tries to marry a young man. Uh, She hides her serpentine form. builds this this magnificent palace for them both, conjures servants and riches out of thin air, draws him in, um, he falls for her, they're about to get married, and then his old tutor turns up, exposes her as a horrifying snake monster, and um, she uh, vanishes, but not before she admits that her plan was actually to eat him. Um, to eat her new husband on their wedding night because apparently uh, the flesh of young men is the freshest there is. Um, Absolutely. Uh, There's also a uh, courtesan named after her or sharing the same name with her and then people make that connection themselves and keep making jokes that I, I feel like if they've come down through millennia to us, if there were enough that they came down, <laughs> that they passed mm-hmm. down through the millennia to us, she must have been sick of them in her lifetime. Mm-hmm. I, it must have been relentless. Um, sorry. So then, what kind of does that tell us about this? Because
3: it's, it's obviously, these aren't just stories, right? And if we've got this idea of Lamashtu and what she represented and some of the fears she might have been a response to. We see that with Lamia continuing, but now we've tacked on this whole man- husband-eating, man-eating, sexy stuff. So what is that telling us about kind of the people telling these stories? What were Greek, ancient Greeks and ancient Romans thinking about women that kind of makes these stories stick so much?
1: So, I mean, obviously, the women of ancient Greece and Rome are still very much, you know, driven by the fact that they and their children might well die. Um, and that is still an incredibly big concern and it's one of the reasons why Lamia lasts for so long, why Lamashri lasts so long and then why Lamia lasts for so long. They are clinging on to her in the same way the Mesopotamian woman did. But at the same time, she starts to come with this idea of representing the opposite of what a good woman ought to be. Um, now, obviously a lot changes through, through time, and space, even in sort of ancient Greece and ancient Rome, what a good woman ought to be shifts about a lot. And it depends on where you live and what class you're in, exactly what time period and who you want to listen to. But fundamentally you're supposed to get married, stay chaste except for sleeping with your husband, uh, be submissive to your husband, be submissive to all men and produce babies. And Lamia is the opposite of that. She's not producing babies. She's eating babies. Um, she's not submissive to any man. In fact, she's dominating them in this incredibly violent and visceral way where you know she'll seduce you and then eat, them, eat you. Um, and yeah, she's also not staying chaste. She is sleeping around with everyone. Um, and this is driving home an idea that if you are not a good woman, you are literally monstrous. You are literally demonic. Um, And it's kind of enforcing this stereotypical idea of what a woman should be. Mm. It's
3: raising the stakes. Either you do exactly what we say or... Yes, absolutely. Mm. So another kind of new element, if we're comparing Lamashtu and Lamia, is... um, This idea that Lamia seems to quite often be from the sea, hidden in the sea, that that the ocean, the sea, turns up a lot in these legends. Yeah. Um, And that's relatively new from the Lamashtu side. So why is the sea so prominent here?
1: Yeah. So Lamashtu, as you say, nothing to do with the sea. If if demons are in Mesopotamia, they should be in the steppe. They're not wet at all.
3: Yeah. She's got talons and she flies.
1: Yeah, exactly. And then... You get to ancient Greece and there starts to be this connection between Lamia and the sea. It's not quite clear where it starts. And I'll be honest, it's not quite clear why it starts, but it's definitely there. Uh, Aristotle calls her a shark. She's supposed to be the mother of uh, Scylla, the um, sort of sea monster who attacks Odysseus. I mean, that doesn't really make sense because she's also meant to eat her own children, but fair enough. Um, And then there is this one incredibly famous story where she has the tail of a snake and she sits by the sea um, at a passage, which is so dangerous that if you sail into it, you certainly won't be sailing out again. And when shipwrecked sailors come up the beach, she exposes her breasts to them and to lure them in. Um, And then as soon as they get close enough, she reveals her horrible serpentine self and eats them alive. Um, And... If I I don't know if you want to go into mermaids at this point, but this is you, then let's go into mermaids. Let's do it. Yeah, this might sound incredibly familiar. Uh, The idea of a scaly-tailed woman sitting by the sea, bare breasted luring in sailors and eating them alive. And it's because it is the fundamental building block of our legend of mermaids is Lamias,
3: Which I definitely did not know. Um, and we're definitely going to get into but in order to do that we kind of have to ask a question first about why lamia stuck around enough to become a mermaid because mermaids i mean i don't know honestly i'm not an expert in ancient history that's why you're the one who's written this book um but i do know more about sort of medieval and early modern history so mermaids i was like okay I'm, i've heard of these before i've got some ideas about what's going on here lamia way less familiar But if Lamia's Become, become mermaids, or at least some of Lamia becomes mermaid. Um, then that means that the tradition obviously survives, which is kind of surprising because between the ancient Greeks and the Romans and the medieval period, not a lot survives. And one of the reasons, culturally, in terms of belief systems, etc., is we then get obviously the Christian Church, the Catholic Church. I cannot imagine the Catholic Church being super psyched about Lamia doesn't really well, fit in with the saints and everything?
1: Well, I mean they are. Uh they're only super psyched mm. about one element of Lamia. And this is back right in the early church. This is sort of late antiquity Byzantine nonsense. Um so pre-catholic, but you've got you've got this sort of split with Lamia. And you can see it emerging in ancient Greece and by the Byzantine period it's really obvious and it's that she becomes a demon who on one side represents uh fears women's fears of uh pregnancy and of infant death and on the other side she is representing male fears of being seduced and of losing their power and control over women um, of the idea that because women, they might be sexually attracted to a woman. That means that a woman might have power over them in some way. Um, And the church doesn't really care at all about uh, pregnancy and infant death. In fact, The pregnancy and infant death side of Lamia, they say is old wives tales, nonsense. And there's some related demons as well. And all old wives tales, only foolish old women believe in them. And on the other side, you've got sexy Lamia. And oh, that's important enough. Popes are talking about her. They are extremely pro the idea that there is a demon who can represent their fears of women. And once you hit the sort of Later medieval period, where these ideas about chastity are becoming really, really important in the church, where you've got these sort of, I mean, they, bizarre ideas that, you know. Uh, churchmen absolutely mustn't marry, that uh, if you have a wet dream, then you can't serve mass the next morning. Um, If you stay a virgin your entire life and live chaste, then you'll be able to display a badge of honour in heaven and your um, corpse won't rot because it will be preserved in such astonishing um, purity. Um, And this fear of women and fear of seductive women starts to become even more powerful. I mean, you've got stories that are reported as wonderful and great of sort of, you know, churchmen. Remembering a time they once saw a woman walk past them on the street and hurling themselves into a patch of brambles to try and overcome their lustful thoughts. You've got men who refuse to even sit in a room with their own sisters because they're so afraid they might think something sinful. It is really a there's a lot of issues going on there. And it's at this stage that the mermaid really starts to become prominent within the church. Um a lot of medieval buildings you can walk into and you'll be able to see a mermaid. Uh, bestiaries, which uh, were produced um sort of within the medieval church. Um they're books of beasts, and they contain all these fun nonsense monsters like fire rocks. Um, but they also include mermaids almost always, um, representing this idea of the danger and power of women's seduction where seduction is defined as existing when a man is nearby
3: Mm. it wasn't just mermaids though and we will i think probably come back to mermaids (laughs) um but in this sort of late antiquity into the medieval period and even a bit beyond um i was fascinated to read in the book that there were a whole bunch of demons that had different names from each other and were in different times and places but the story, the kind of here's who the demon is and this is what happened to them, etc. The, the story of it, the fairy tale, the fable was remarkably similar across different places and times. You know, the difference is being like, oh, well, in that story, there were two brothers and this one, there's one. It's like, OK, well, that's not actually that big a difference. Um, so can you tell us a bit about these stories and kind of why they're so common and what what
1: what we can understand from that? Yeah, so this is a sort of, they're called charm stories, because the idea is that if you say the story, you're saying an incantation against the monster that you're telling the story about. And as you say, they're found sort of across late antiquity and then much later as well. Um, And they're told against child-killing demonesses and they all follow pretty much the same pattern. One of the earliest variants of this story that we have is there is a woman uh, she's had uh, a lot of children before and they've all been killed by a monster called the Galu. Um, and she's determined that the last child is going to survive. So while she's pregnant, she locks herself up in a tower made of copper or made of metal or with metal doors or within the copper-making district of a city um, and forbids anyone from entering. And then her brothers turn up brother or brothers uh, changes slightly. And these brothers tend to have names based on the letters SNS. Um, there's Cicinoeus, um, is the very, very common one. And then there's a whole load of derivations from that. Um, and like I say, sometimes he's doubled or turning up in triplicate. And sometimes it's just him. And he begs his sister to let him in and says, I'm your brother, or in some cases a saint. So he says, I'm a saint. Um, how can I possibly cause problems? You have to let me in. And she does. And the monster sneaks in with him. Sometimes uh, she becomes a hare in his beard. Sometimes the monster becomes a, a fly who lands on his uh, spear. Um, sometimes a bit of grain that hides in the saddlebags of his horses. But the monster gets in. Eats the child in the night and then leaves and races towards the sea and the brother and or brothers who have caused all this problem in the first place, though the legends never focus on that, um, chase after her, um, catch her just before she gets to the sea, make her tell her tell them all of her names um, and make her promise that she will never return where the names are spoken or written. Um, So as I say, it's a charm story, because as you tell the story, you recite the names and you recite the promise that the demon has made, reminding the demon that you're saying the names, the demon has promised not to turn up when you do that. So they should leave you alone. Um, And you're meant to do this sort of either over an ill child or when you're concerned about pregnancy yourself to try and drive the monster off.
2: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
0: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Archaea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
3: So, I mean, in some senses, that last part of your answer kind of helps us understand why this is in so many places and so many times. Is it, again, back to this idea of childbirth being so horrific that you need a story? But I guess then why would it be the same story?
1: Well, incantations, and we see this in Mesopotamia as well, and you see this in general, where incantations are important. You're not just grabbing a story and telling it for fun. You're telling it because you genuinely, on some level, believe that this is going to drive off the monster that's killing your child. It's the kind of thing that you are going to remember and you are going to want to get right. Um There might be a few sliding bits, uh, sort of the number of brothers or whatever, but you're not, you're going to be trying to remember this as exactly as you can. Um, You're not going to be adding fun bits because you think they'd liven it up um, because Mm. this is a life or death situation that you're bringing it to.
3: And that's also, I imagine, why it would be emphasized in terms of making
1: sure to pass it down. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and one of the fun things we have, so I, I vaguely touched on this with the um with your question about the church and Lamia, but for a lot of history, the woman's side of these beliefs, which this particular story is tied to, are dismissed, are rejected, they're not important, they're old wives' tales, stop talking about them, stop passing them down, focus on the sexy side, that's what's vital. Um And what you've got here is women telling women stories, women passing down these stories to other women. And actually one of the things I think we're about to get onto are these things called the incantation bowls, Mm. where this story turns up and it's being written by a woman. Um, And it's so nice to be able to see a woman actually passing this story on and to be able to name her. Mm. Yeah. Yeah.
3: So yes, we must now. Obviously, what are incantation bowls? What's cool about them? Tell us everything.
1: (laughs) So much cool about them. So this is in late antiquity in Mesopotamia. You get these things called incantation bowls. Um, They look like plain, the plainest bowls you could imagine. They seem to, people seem to just be taking them from, you know, the same potter who's making the bowls that go on their kitchen table and they eat out of. There's nothing special about how they're made at all, except that written all around the inside of them are incantations against monsters, and you find them buried upside down, um in houses and also in cemeteries and the idea seems to have been that sort of much as you might trap a spider underneath the bowl then these are for trapping demons underneath um and they'll keep the demon trapped there and neutralized um neutralized by the incantations and by the fact they're sort of metaphorically trapped under the bowl um now incantation bowls they cover an enormous variety of topics Um, there's a huge number of things they're being used against and a huge number of monsters they're being used against but one of the recurring monsters is called Lilith now uh, it was probably about 20 minutes ago when I brought up Lilithu um, the ghost of a girl who died before she had sex in ancient Mesopotamia and so sought out living men to try and have her way with them, and how she blended with Lamashtu. Um, that was obviously Mesopotamia, and this is her again, sort of a few hundred years later, turning up in the incantation bowls as a monster called Lilith. And fundamentally, she looks very, very similar to how she looked in Mesopotamia. She is still killing children, she is still harming pregnant mothers, and she is still seducing, she seduces men and women. Um, there is a vague idea that she might appear as a man to a woman and a woman to a man, but also a suggestion that she might just turn up as a woman and seduce you as a woman. If you're a woman yourself, she's very, she's very cool. Um, (laughs) I really, really love her. Um, but yes. And at the same time, you also start to get these incantations about her that use this story. Mm that is a slight uh dumbing down of the facts but actually i don't think we've quite got time to go into exactly where this story comes from and how it originates fundamentally it's used against lilith on the incantation bowls um yes, because this, otherwise this we'll again, be here all day
3: this is again where i remind <laughs> listeners that the book has all the detail um <laughs> and very much recommend going there for more on lilith's origins um Could you tell us a bit, I mean, I suppose, similarly to how you explained Lamashtu to Lamia to mermaids, right? It starts off as being fears mostly around women, uh, by women. Then you add in this fear, that thing that men are scared of, and then the women bit gets taken away, except women actually carry it on, but not being talked about by popes, etc. So, similarly, Lilith goes through a bit of a transformation Um, how and why do men get involved in the legend of Lilith and making her scary to them?
1: Yeah, so you sort of see it on the incantation bowls in that the majority of bowls against Lilith are still being made by women, but men are occasionally involved in making them and they clearly occasionally fear her seducing them. But then she sort of gets picked up and brought into Judaism. Now, I will say some of the, I um, should have said this earlier, the Aramaic incantation bowls are used across a vast number of sort of religions and different sects. One of them is Judaism. Um, so she's already there sort of in Judaic folklore. Um, and she is really, really picked up by uh, Kabbalah. And at that stage, much like with the church, actually, you get a lot of men who are really not necessarily, are in organizations that are male only, aren't necessarily talking to women about, you know, their work um, and the sort of demonic legends that they're pushing. Um, and you start to really get this Lilith who is very centered on male fears and to an even greater extent than sort of Lamia and Mermaids, flips the story of Lamashtu and Lilith entirely on its head compared to the female version. So I've already said Lilitu is responsible for wet dreams and increasingly she becomes responsible increasingly she becomes thought of as a monster who will steal your semen and use it to impregnate herself and make an entire family of demonic children who are technically yours. Um, And I I can see how that would be
3: terrifying, maybe. Yes,
1: yes it would. Well, the idea is that she can do this if um, you have masturbated, which you're absolutely not meant to be doing in um, a lot of Judaic law. Um, If you've had sex with your wife, when you're angry with her or when you're not in a state of purity. Um, And there is this idea, this fear Medieval Judaism is astonishingly sex positive in a lot of ways. Uh, the female orgasm is sort of acknowledged. Uh, there's even talk about contraception and whether or not that's useful. Um, but these areas where you're, where sex is viewed as a very bad thing are where Lilith tends to lurk. And the ways in which she manifests, her, manifests herself come off as so... So male centered, at least in part, because there is this, there's this overriding fear that she will have your children and that, that will prove that you have done something wrong sexually because she wouldn't have been able to take your sperm if you hadn't. Um, And then she might turn up at your funeral and embarrass you in front of God and your entire family by showing off your children. Um, She might contest your inheritance by saying that actually she's had children with you. um, And so she should be allowed some of your property. She really comes across as the sort of other woman, as sort of male fears about another woman who might have their children and it might embarrass them. Right. It's about embarrassment. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, And as I say, this is a complete flipping of the myth because the myth is meant to be, you know, and originated with, she'll kill your children. That's what's so frightening about her. There's women are genuinely afraid and for good reason that their children will die because a third of them will. And Lilith is a representation of that. And then on the other side, you've got men taking over the myth and saying, no, 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 actually I'm worried that I might have some illegitimate kids who will contest my inheritance. And to be honest, there is a distinct feeling at a certain point when I was writing this book, that women's fears are 100% legitimate and out of their control. And Um, the male side of it, if you don't want to have illegitimate children, then don't have illegitimate children. hmm, And also, that's not as scary as maybe dying in childbirth. Well, Um, and
3: and the other idea is that the the whole fear of legitimacy or illegitimacy is, in many cultures, a construct to police women's sexuality in particular. So you wouldn't necessarily have those worries if the rules you were making women live under were different, whereas dying in childbirth is not culturally
1: specific. Yeah. Yeah. It's very legitimate. I mean, if if we're going to get into this, then I can also discussions about the fact that the Catholic men, men in the Catholic church seem to be obsessed with this idea that women were queuing up to seduce them, which was 100% a fantasy. And you know, you, there is this real split in this book between women's very real fears being dismissed and men's largely fabricated fears being given enormous prominence and respect. And it is slightly infuriating.
3: Hmm. Yeah, no, and especially the idea of kind of um, going back to what you were saying about the Lamia, that it had the two aspects. And one of the aspects was, no, 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 this is old wives' tales, don't talk about it. And the other one was, no, this is really important, do we have to keep it? Um, which is an interesting sort of prioritization, I suppose.
1: Absolutely. Oof.
3: So I'd love to move us slightly more towards the modern period, because as you said right at the beginning, a lot of these stories are actually still with us, right? Obviously, mermaids being the kind of most obvious example. Um, so in everything you've just described, in some ways that would seem surprising. There's a whole lot of stamping out going around, right? There's a whole lot of kind of one particular version of these stories being passed down. and in a lot of ways, you'd kind of expect them to die out, right? The Catholic Church, well, it's no longer just the Catholic Church. There are many other kinds of Christianity now, and they are not as prominent in a lot of cultures in the world as they used to be. So, but we still have them. They're still kicking around and they're still kicking around, for example, in the Victorian age, but not quite in these like fear mongery ish ways we've just been discussing or kind of. So what is happening? During the Victorian period, why do mermaids and lamias not only show up, but seem to be good, intriguing, interesting, not just inherently bad? Um, kind of before then, and then sort of what happens? Like, why do we get this moment of like, ooh, maybe we like these, and then it dies? <laughs> um
1: Like might be a strong word, but Okay, um, fair. In medieval Europe, pretty much as soon as the mermaid gets outside of the church, then she becomes a much more interesting and complex creature. You have very, very early on, you've got poetry that talks about how the mermaid cries when it's uh, sunny, because she's thinking about how storms will come. And um, she is happy when there are storms because she's thinking about how there'll be sunshine soon. And poets tying this in beautifully to the idea of sort of getting through a, an unhappy moment in their relationship by thinking of the sun that will inevitably come at some point. And it's really lovely. And also in medieval Europe, you've got very much the sort of lingering idea that you know, the supernatural is not necessarily terrible. There's a lot of sort of tales about supernatural entities that are neither good or bad, that are just like us, but a bit more magic. And the mermaid very much gets swept up in all that. And there's legends that are told about her where she acts fundamentally sort of like a fairy. Um, She's just, yeah, a a super, nice supernatural, not even nice. She is a neutral supernatural entity who is, Acting for herself there's one lovely story where she um a mermaid comes to a church and the only reason you can tell she's a mermaid is because she sings so beautifully um and she falls in love with a man in the choir who also sings beautifully and then they both go into the sea together and live happily there forever and it's it's just very sweet it's not something that the sort of the catholic church would have been pushing but it's what happens once the mermaid gets out of that now there is still a horrible misogynistic side to the mermaid. Um, in fact, we get um, Mary, Queen of Scots, is drawn as a mermaid to um, indicate how she seduced her lover into murder and uh, dishonour. Um th- there's still yeah this this horrible misogyny that's attached to it that says that women are incredibly seductive and incredibly immoral and being seduced by a woman is the worst thing that can happen to you but there is also this sort of positive element to it as well and then we hit the victorian period Uh Um, (laughs) and a lot of that gets lost by the wayside now now i will say In favor of the Victorians, my favorite thing about them is that they bring all this mythology back together. Um, They have lamias, they have mermaids, um, who have been separate for sort of centuries by this stage. And suddenly the Victorians are saying, no, 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 but they're basically the same. They're bringing Lilith back as well. Lilith hasn't been part of this group. For, you know, well, their common ancestor is Lamashtu you know, and the Victorians are saying, no, 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 this is all part of the same group. They're not tracing the history. They're just drawing comparisons between them and saying these are a whole load of serpentine, seductive, dangerous women. Um, and I very much enjoy that. I think it's lovely that they all meet again in the Victorian period, but they meet again extremely negatively in the Victorian period. Um, they come with this idea that, um, or women, women are actually awful. Uh, they've actually all got serpents. They've all got this serpentine, lying, untruthful, untrustworthy nature, but they keep it hidden, much like a mermaid keeps her tail hidden beneath the waves. Um, and only, um, or one of the pre Raphaelites um, says that a woman is her most lovely is when she's vulnerable and pathetic, but the moment you have pity for her is the moment that you must beware, which, ew. Uh, It's a bit much. It is a bit much. Uh, But also that is very much the spirit that is being brought to these mermaid paintings. And you get a lot of really uncomfortable paintings, actually. Uh, John William Waterhouse really takes this angle. He's sort of painting very young girls, you know, 14, 15-year-old girls to look all seductive. But the message of the painting is actually, actually, they're seducing you. You're the victim here. Um, It's... Extremely uncomfortable uh, viewing occasionally.
3: So why? Why are the Victorians suddenly bringing all this back and doing this with it?
1: I mean, there are a lot of reasons. Uh, Too many to get into now. But um, one of them is that um, women's rights are slightly coming to the forefront again. Um, That, you know... There's uh, women start to be able to get into university and start to be able to take degrees. Uh, Divorce becomes slightly more socially acceptable and comes with the idea that it shouldn't leave a woman in penury and that women should be able to maintain some property from the marriage and some money from the marriage. Um, There is this whole idea of the new woman, um, which is not necessarily meant in a positive way, as a woman who is sexually active, um, who doesn't submit to a husband, who is educated, um, who maybe is pushing for a vote, all this kind of thing. Um, and this does sort of link with the idea of women are actually horrible seducers. Women shouldn't come anywhere close to power. Um, women are just manipulative. And really ties into this idea of these seductive, monstrous women who we find in sort of literature and art of the time.
3: And of course that really kind of makes sense because a lot of those things we still have with us today right we have on the one hand feminists reclaiming mermaids and lilith and sirens and you know we've got books like this that go hang on a second um but we also still very much have those ideas of you know seduction um and uncertainty and fear so that i think in a lot of ways as much as I technically asked you about the Victorians very much takes us up to the present in a lot of senses. Um, So obviously we've taken quite a lot of your time, but before we let you go, we've gone up to the present, we've talked about the past, so that obviously means the future is the last question. This book is out, people can go read it. What might you be working on now or next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like people to be aware of?
1: Well... Well, hmm. nothing's been signed yet, so I don't want to <laughs> jinx it. How about just like, you can give us little tiny bits. <laughs> what I'm researching now, whether or not anyone wants to publish it, and it's fair enough if they don't, um, I have gotten very into um, Christmas monsters and the sort of dark side of Christmas. There is an incredibly fascinating group of Christmas witches who are all about slitting open children's bellies if they don't do their chores. And they are, in fact, linked to some of the monsters who turn up in *Women's Law*. Um, there is a group of child-snatching demons um, who I talk about in *Women's Law*. Who all have iron noses um, for various long, convoluted reasons. And these Christmas witches all have the iron noses too, and are all also killing children. Um, and. I looked at that and I thought, that's fun. Um, And I love that they're connected with Christmas Um, and then discovered an enormous subculture of sort of these dark Christmas traditions that you have, Krampus um, and devils all around Christmas and guising and mama's plays and weird rituals that you can do at Christmas to try and get the dead to tell you the future. Um, And yeah, so that's what I am into at the moment.
3: Okay. Well, I hope that becomes a book. That'd be fascinating. (laughs) Um, But in the meantime, best of luck with your research. And listeners, of course, can read the book we've been discussing titled Women's Lore, 4,000 Years of Sirens, Serpents and Succubi. Sarah, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me on. It's been so much fun.